So we are in uh, Romans chapter 3 still. And uh, last week we began in verse 21, which was a major, is a major turning point in Romans and in the argument of Romans. And uh, I, uh, we we looked at uh, we were going to look at the first 26 verses if we made it uh, excuse me first uh, the six verses from 21 through 26 as uh, as the Lord gave us time but uh, we really only got down into verse 24 uh, and uh, so uh, I left uh, 25 and 26 for us to look at this week and uh, and we'll uh, do that today. So, let me read those verses again, and uh, then, as usual, we'll kind of review some of the things we talked about last week in those first three or four verses of the passage, uh, and then we'll go on. Paul says in beginning of verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed, or man has been manifested, being witnessed, by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, uh, so we had somebody just walk in. Uh, Welcome. Uh, My name's Rick. What's your name? Jeff? Okay. Pardon? Kevin. I'm sorry. We've got to work on this hearing here. Kevin. I'm glad to have you with us, Kevin. We're looking at Romans chapter 3, and we started in verse starting 21, and we're just getting started. So you got here just kind of at the beginning. So, welcome. Uh, okay. Well, uh, in verses uh, 21 through 24 that we looked at last week, what are some of the things we talked about that you remember? <laughs> he does, doesn't he? How many times has he said that? There's no difference. You know, it's for both Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction, etc., etc. He says it a bunch of times. Apparently, he wants them to get that point. <laughs> okay, what else? He talked about the righteousness of God. He pointed out that he is uh, referring there to God making people righteous. They don't deserve it. Okay. Giving them the righteousness, the imputation. Okay. Uh, crediting righteousness to them or declaring them righteous. Okay. Good. Uh, as you pointed out, anybody who thinks about that realizes that that doesn't really make sense that God would do something so drastic and dramatic and there's no, there's no uh, way for us to get even close. 
to qualifying for that righteousness. Yeah, and in fact, that creates a major problem for us today. Uh, so we'll look at that more in depth today. But it does create us a, a create a big problem because God specifically commands in the law that you are not to render a verdict that renders a wicked person righteous. And in Proverbs, he calls it an abomination. So we have a problem. There seems to be an inconsistency here. And that's part of the thing we're going to wrestle with today. Okay? What else? Let me just mention one thing. Um, Jim mentioned the, right, uh, the references there in verses 21 and 22 to the righteousness of God being that imputed righteousness or the righteousness that God just decrees upon us. Okay, That He decrees that wicked people are righteous and He makes them righteous by His decree. That is to be distinguished, and we'll see this as we go on in these last two verses today, verses 25 and 26, has to be distinguished from what he refers to in 25 and 26 as his righteousness. So the righteousness of God is kind of a technical term that refers to what Jim was talking about. In verses 25 and 26, when he talks about his righteousness, he's talking about God's actual righteousness. Not the righteousness that he gives to us by imputation, but his actual integrity and character and holiness, etc. So I just want to make that point. But going back to last week's lesson, what other things do you remember? That we talked about. For those of you who are here, a number of you weren't last week, but. We talked about the fact that these things were pointed out in the Law and the Prophets, and it's been mentioned. In other words, this is not new material. Okay. All of a sudden introduced by Paul, but it's something that's been, you can see, throughout the Old Testament. Okay, okay. So although the Old Testament wasn't explicit, it wasn't real explicit in the Old Testament, it was there, it was hinted at, it was suggested at, so that the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, serve as a witness to this righteousness of God which has now been revealed. Okay? What else? Okay, okay, we did because Paul there in verse 20, uh, 22 talks about, he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And it seems a little redundant there. He talks about the righteousness which comes from God through uh, faith in Christ to all those who believe. And it sounds a bit redundant, but in reality, he's emphasizing two different things. And the first thing he's emphasizing is that the righteousness of God comes by faith. That's the only way it comes. And as he points out in the next couple of verses, that's because all of us are sinners. And since all of us are sinners, none of us can achieve the righteousness of God by the law, by doing good deeds, by living according to some moral or ethical code. We cannot do it. So without distinction, we are all sinners. So without distinction, we all get this righteousness of God only through faith. So, faith is the necessary element in salvation, but it is also the efficacious element of salvation. And what we mean by that is, is and we drew a diagram. You remember, we drew a diagram up here on the board uh, to illustrate uh, what Paul was and was not saying. Okay, 
And so what Paul is saying is, is that faith is necessary, but it's, that's not just the only thing he's saying. He's saying that everybody who has faith. So there may be some who have faith and have other things. And there may be some who have faith and have nothing else. But what Paul is saying is that God's righteousness is available to everybody who only has faith. So it is necessary. Faith is the one necessary thing for salvation. And that one thing, faith, is the thing that saves everybody who has that faith. Okay? And so that's the thing he's trying to stress there. It is essential for salvation and it is effective, or we say efficacious for salvation. Okay? What else? Okay, just uh, uh, one other thing I want to point out then before we go on in verse uh, 24 after he's pointed out that there's no distinction that we are all sinners, so the most upright, outstanding, uh, moral philanthropist, you know, the kind of the greatest, goodest person you can think of, that person is a sinner, and the most despicable, wicked, you know, just they're all sinners, okay? We are all sinners, and we all are under God's wrath because we are sinners. There's no distinction. And then he says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, so we understand that just as there's no distinction between everybody because we're all sinners, now we find out there's no distinction. We all get saved the same way. And he uses the term justified there, being justified. Now, what's the difference between justification and righteousness? We talked about that last week, remember? Word, you got the word righteous on one side and the word justify on the other side. What's the difference between those two words? There isn't. <laughs> okay. All right. It's the same. Basically, it's the same Greek word. In the Greek, which of course is the way the New Testament was originally written, in the Greek, you have this, basically the same word and you have the noun version and you have the verb version. Okay. The noun version is righteous and the verb version is justify. Okay. So you have, you have righteousness. That's a noun. It describes something. Okay. You have righteousness. And then you have justify, which simply means to make someone righteous. Okay? That's what it means. So, when he says in verse, in verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace, he's talking about the same thing he was just talking about in the earlier verses about the righteousness of God. Okay? It's just, he's talking about the same thing. But in one case, he's talking about the thing that is given and in the other case, he's talking about the act of giving it. Okay? So, that's what he's talking about there in verse 24, that we are being, can I use this word, righteousified. Okay? We are being righteousified as a gift by God's grace. So, God is just giving this to us freely. We're not earning it. 
We're not keeping a bunch of laws and commandments and rules and regulations in order to get it. But He's just giving it as a gift because of His gracious nature to everybody who believes without distinction. To everybody who believes in whom? In Christ, he says. In Jesus. Verse 24. Okay? So it's being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, or as we said last week, you could translate that word ransom. Through the ransom which is in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus is a ransom that is paid to purchase, as we said last week, slaves, prisoners of war, and convicted criminals. Okay, That's how the word was typically used uh, in the centuries leading up to the New Testament era. It was used as a reference to a purchase price paid to buy somebody who had been a convicted criminal and was to free them from their, uh, from their sentence or somebody who was a slave to buy them out of slavery or somebody who was a prisoner of war to buy them back from the enemy. And that's a perfect picture of us, isn't it? We're all three of those things. We're prisoners of war. Uh, we're slaves of sin. And we are convicted criminals. And Christ is the ransom for everyone who believes in Him. Whom, he says, picking it up in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith because, he says... God, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Now, when I read these verses, I kept telling God this as I was working on this lesson. As I read these verses, I'm going, there's something here, God. This is big stuff. This is big stuff. And when I read these two, and you know, of course, I'm gonna, we're going to have to break them down because there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of stuff going on in these verses and some big words and that sort of thing. So we'll have to break all that down. But when we do, then we begin to realize, boy, this is turning point stuff, folks. This is turning point stuff. This is amazing. And as I was, and I was, as I was working on it, I was just telling the Lord, I said, okay, Lord, I know what you're saying, but I've got a hunch. There's just, there's just something more powerful and wonderful down in there that I haven't yet tapped into. And I still feel that way. I just feel like, I just feel like I, I can't get down into the depth of these two verses. But maybe we can work on it and, and maybe God will help us on that because ju- it's just some amazing stuff going on here. Okay? Well, but before we explore these verses in detail, I want you to turn over to the book of Hebrews. Okay? Uh, turn over to the book of Hebrews and uh, to uh, chapter 9. 
And I just want to read some verses in Hebrews chapter 9 because we'll be thinking about them as we're thinking about these two verses in Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, it may have been Paul, I tend to think it wasn't. We don't know for sure who the writer of Hebrews was. But he sure thinks a lot like Paul thinks, okay? And so he begins in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations. So he's talking about the law and, and, you know, the whole Pentateuch, the law that was given to Moses and the covenant that was given to the children of Israel there at Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. And that's what he's referring to. He says, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. But behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies. So he's describing that tent out in the wilderness that they had as they went through the wilderness, the tabernacle, and had these two parts to it. The larger part of the tent was the holy, and then that smaller part was the holy of holies having in the Holy of Holies a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar containing the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We don't know exactly what it was like, he was saying, so we can't talk about it in a lot of detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So he says, now these offerings and sacrifices made once a year in the Holy of Holies, he says, cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Can't clean your conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, uh, let's see, let's read a a few more verses. Uh, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Then drop down to verse 10, a few verses, beginning in verse 1. For the law, 
since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, now just remember all that we just read in Hebrews as we begin to talk about these two verses in Romans. And the first thing that Paul tells us after he tells us that we're all, everybody who's going to be justified, everybody who's going to be made righteous by God, who's going to be declared righteous by God, all these sinners, wicked people who are going to be declared righteous by God are going to be done so by the ransom that is in Christ Jesus through faith. So it is when people by faith receive the ransom of Christ that they are justified or righteousified, if I can use that word, righteousified by God through Christ, whom, he says in verse 25, God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood through faith. What in the world does that mean? Well, there are four profound truths there in that one part of a sentence. It's not even a full sentence. The first thing has to do with the public display. Okay, There's something significant going on there. Paul makes an issue in these two verses about the public display, right? He talks in there at the beginning of verse 25 about the fact that Christ was publicly displayed as a propitiation. And then he talks about it being a demonstration in verse 25. And again, in verse 26, he talks about it being a demonstration. So one of the important points of this passage is the idea of the public display of Christ. Okay. Uh, then uh, the next thing in those verses, or in that, in that line, of the first line of verse 25, is that Christ is a propitiation. Okay. He is a propitiation in His blood. And we'll talk about what in the world that means in just a minute. And then he says, it is in His blood. That's how the propitiation happens. It's in His blood. And then finally, it comes through faith. So four profound concepts just in that one little half a sentence. Okay? That Christ is publicly displayed. Well, I'm going to wait to focus on the public display of it here for a minute. And I want to talk first about the idea of a propitiation. Okay? It's a big word. It's hard to say. Only theologians can say it. The rest of us, our tongues trip all over. Right? And... Uh, and uh, and when we read it, you know, maybe if we've been in church a long time in our lives, we have some clue or some idea of what it means. But, but you know, if somebody gave us a pop quiz and said, define propitiation, we'd go, oh, let's see, I forget. You know, <laughs> let me go back to my Bible dictionary and look it up. Okay. Well, 
the word propitiation there is a translation. It's not a transliteration. You know what a transliter- transliteration is? It's where the translator has attempted to kind of replicate the sound of the Greek word in English, okay? Uh, because we don't have a good English word for the Greek word. So they transliterate it. They just kind of make it try to sound like the Greek word. Okay, that's a transliteration. This is not a transliteration. This is a translation. Okay, so the actual Greek word that's being translated here is the Greek word philasterian. Okay, philasterian. And, and the word can be translated... Uh, a couple different ways. It can be translated as, uh, and let me just write these up here for you, um, if I can find one that works. Uh, it can be translated as it usually is in our Bibles, most translations, as propitiation, or it could be translated, some uh, commentators like to translate it, uh, uh, expiation. I'm having trouble with my spelling here. I'm joining. Uh... I totally <laughs> you totally relate. Okay, <laughs> I was going to say I'm joining Hal here. Expiation. Okay, and there's a difference in the meaning of those two words. Propitiation is the idea that was used in pagan cultures. It was the idea that the gods gods are mad. You've made them mad. You've done something that made the gods mad, and so you have to bring some kind of sacrifice offering to assuage the anger of the gods, these pagan gods, okay? Uh, and uh, so the idea is to assuage the anger of God. Okay. Expiation has more the idea of, of having our sins expiated, having our sins cleansed or washed away. It's the idea of forgiveness of sins, okay? And, uh, and one of the reasons that uh, commentators kind of debate a little bit about which way, which of these two ways should we translate the word here is, is the emphasis on the idea of assuaging the wrath of God or is it more on the idea uh, on the idea of, for, of the forgiveness of sins one of the reasons they struggle with that is because the Greek word there hilasterion carries with it the sense of the place of forgiveness okay so, so that, that's really kind of, in a more literal sense, what the word means, the place of forgiveness. And so they kind of debate. And some commentators say, well, it really should be expiation because, because if you use the word propitiation to the minds of people in the first century, they would get that pagan image in their mind, which is not at all what's going on, right, in, in the Christian faith, Right. Because we are not talking about the gods or a god just being irked at us because, you know, it's in the, with the pagans' gods, they were, very, they were very temperamental, right? And they were very capricious. And so their anger would be very, a very temperamental, capricious, uh, uh, kind of spontaneous, uh, you know, unpredictable anger. And they might get angry at you for any number of things. And when a propitiation was offered to these capricious pagan gods, who offered the sacrifice? Well, pardon? Okay, the offender. Okay, either, you know, might be through a priest, 
But it's the offender brings a sacrifice, right? And he offers a sacrifice, okay? And that sacrifice might be something of value to him, some object that he has. It might be money. It might be a blood sacrifice, an animal. Or, you know, it might be his little baby boy or little baby girl. It might be a human sacrifice. Okay. But this was done to somehow pacify the capricious anger of the pagan gods. This is clearly not what we're talking about. And that's why some commentators object to this idea because they think that's the image that might have been conjured up in the minds of the Romans or others when Paul used that term. And quite clearly, that's not what we're talking about, are we? Because we are not talking about a capricious God. But we are talking about a God who changes not. We are talking about a God whose anger is not capricious and comes and goes and is somewhat unpredictable. What we're talking about a God whose anger over sin is absolutely constant and justified. But furthermore, when we're talking about the propitiation itself, we're not talking about a sacrifice that we make. We're talking about a sacrifice that that God made to satisfy his anger. But still, the translators almost universally translate it propitiation. And the reason for that is because quite clearly, for the last two chapters of Romans, the issue Paul's been dealing with is what? The wrath of God. Right? That's what he's been talking about. The wrath of God on sinners. And we're just two or three verses removed from that main theme that he's been dealing with. So it does seem that the best way to translate that is to translate it propitiation. That Christ is the sacrifice in His blood that satisfies the wrath of God over my sin and your sin. Well, but it gets more exciting than this. Because when Paul chooses to use the word hilasterian here, he's using a word with which he is very familiar, unlike us. For example, um, some of you here have a New American Standard here with footnotes. Go back to Exodus chapter 25. And uh, uh, let me find the exact verse. I think it's verse 22, but let me double check. Exodus 25, uh, verse 17. Okay, and in Exodus 25:17, other translations may do this too, but I know the New American does. Uh, in Exodus 25:17, there is a footnote number one. Do you see that? Does somebody have that? You have it. Okay. And what does and where is that number one? On what word? Okay. And okay. So the footnote is on the word what? The number is on the word what? It's on mercy. Okay. It's on mercy or mercy seat. And if you go over and look at the footnote, what does it say? Propitiatory. Bingo. Same word. It's the same word. In other words, all the way throughout the Old Testament, 
in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but eventually, because the language of everybody was becoming Greek, they, you know, and a lot of Jews didn't know Hebrew or didn't know it well, eventually, uh, eventually you have the Septuagint translation. It was back, I don't know, 100, 200 years before the time of Christ. A bunch of scholars, Hebrew scholars, sat down and translated the Bible into the Septuagint, into the Greek. And we call that the Septuagint because we think there were 70 scholars who did it. And so, hence the word Sept or Septuagint. Okay? And so they translated into Greek. And over 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 again, something like 70 times in the Old Testament, every time they translated the Hebrew word for mercy seat, they translated it with hilasterium, the word that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 3. Now, some people say, well, yeah, that's true, but Paul's probably not referring to the mercy seat here because he's writing to these Gentile Romans and they wouldn't catch on. But I would suggest to you it would be almost impossible for Paul to use the word hilasterian without the idea of the mercy seat being prominent in his mind because throughout the Old Testament, that's how that Greek word is used to refer to the mercy seat. Now, uh, we know that Paul continually in the book of Romans refers to things in the Old Testament and expects his Gentile readers to understand what he's talking about. When we get to chapter 4, he's going to spend an entire chapter talking about the Old Testament, right? Talking about Abraham and all the things that went on with Abraham. And he expects his Gentile people, readers, to understand what he's talking about. So I believe quite clearly that when Paul refers here to Christ being the propitiation, the hilasterian, that he's wanting to communicate or bring up or allude to in the minds of his readers the idea of the mercy seat. Now, what was the mercy seat? Mercy seat, I Okay. There in Exodus chapter 25, the passage we just kind of looked at just for a moment, God is giving instruction for the construction of the furnishings of the tabernacle. And he's giving the instructions for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was that box. It was about a little under four feet long and a little over two feet wide. Forget how deep. I think maybe a cubit in depth. I forget just now. But So it's this box. It was made out of acacia wood and covered with gold. And in that box, eventually over a period of time, three things were placed. The tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written. The jar containing the manna, which, the, which was the food that the children of Israel ate in the wilderness. And the bud, or excuse me, the, 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 uh, the rod, Aaron's rod, which budded, which was the evidence that, of, of God's approval of the Aaronic priesthood, those three things were placed in that box, and then God instructed that there be a lid constructed made of pure gold, which would sit upon this ark, upon this box, okay? And this lid was made of pure gold and, part, and, and, and one piece with this lid 
was what were called the cherubim, those angel-like creatures that were formed also out of pure gold, one on either end of the lid, and they and and in in the ark uh, in the tabernacle. When you get to the temple, there's a different ark and it's different. But in the ark in the tabernacle in the tent there, these cherubim were fashioned as part of the lid. They faced each other and their wings were outspread like this and touched one another. So they're facing each other from the two ends of the lid and they're, and, they're, and they're facing each other like this and they're reaching out with their wings and their wings touch. So you have the, you have the, the cherubim creating this kind of arch over the lid that sits upon the box, okay, in which are these holy items, the tablet, the jar of manna, and the bud and the rod that budded. Okay? And and as God instructs them there in Exodus twenty five on the construction of this beautiful gold Ark of the Covenant, he says to them, He says, I will meet with you there on the mercy seat under the cherubim. And so you get this picture of the angels and the and you know and so there's this arch and then you have the lid down here and you, and you have the angels and it's all beautiful gold and right here between them is the Shekinah glory unseen can't be touched but it's the presence of God and he says that's where I'll be you want to talk to me you come into the Holy of Holies and you stand in front of that ark and I'll tell you what I want I'll give you my commandments. I'm right there on the mercy seat. All right? Now, uh, as Milford was pointing out, it's all nice and good, but nobody could go in there. <laughs> it's a holy holies. And it was so holy, nobody could go in there. Except once a year. One person. So in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in which you have the Holy of Holies both in the tabernacle and later in the temple, year after year, just one person ever got the privilege of going in to the Holy of Holies. And when he did, what did he have to take with him? We just read about it in Hebrews. What did he have to take? He had to take a blood sacrifice. And so he would go in with this blood sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. On the propitiation. He would sprinkle the blood. And if God accepted that, he could walk out alive. Which he did every time. We have no record of any high priest ever dying in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is the picture that comes to our mind when Paul says that Jesus Christ has been publicly displayed as the propitiation in His blood through faith. So, now, some commentators, they go, now, wait a minute, this is a little confusing because you've got Christ being the place of forgiveness, the mercy seat. 
you've got, you've got him being the mercy seat, but you've also got him being the blood. So, you know, how does, how does this analogy work? Well, I, I really don't have a problem with that. You know why? Because that's not the only time God does that to us. Is Christ not our high priest? And is he not also the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world? You know, he, he, he does that, you know, in other places. So I don't have a problem with this, that we understand that Christ is both the mercy seat itself and the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. So that everybody who believes in him can be made righteous in the eyes of God. But now ask yourself this question. What actually happened there in the Old Testament in the tabernacle? What actually happened there when the high priest went in once a year with a blood sacrifice for the sins of all the people? And he went in and and he entered in there and he, he made his incense offering and he entered in there and he sprinkled the blood on the altar. What actually happened? It served as a reminder really nothing happened. Nothing happened. It just served as a reminder of their sins year after year. Every time they went in there and did this, they were just reminded of their sins. But, as we just read in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So here you have the high priest coming in year after year, trembling in his boots because he's entering into the presence of the holy God. He's coming into the room where the Shekinah glory dwells. And he's coming in there and he's going to right where the Shekinah glory dwells, he's going to sprinkle some blood. Can't imagine what that looked like after a couple hundred years of sprinkling blood on that thing. But he comes in and he sprinkles blood on that thing and and nothing happens. When he walks out of there, he's no more forgiven than before he walked in. That thing that he did did not cover his sins or the sins of the people. But he walked out. He survived. And not only that, but God's Shekinah glory stayed there. Right? Stayed there year after year. And not only that, but God continued to bless the people of Israel in spite of the fact that this sacrifice had not done anything except remind them of their sins. God continued to bless. So actually there was something going on in that Holy of Holies that day. It wasn't the forgiveness of sins. It was the overlooking of sins. It was the forbearance of God. That when they did that, God said, okay, for another year, I'll overlook your sin. 
Now, when it says that God in his forbearance there in verse 25 was overlooking their sins or uh, how does it actually say it in the New American? He says uh, 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 in the forbearance of God, he passed over their sins. It doesn't mean that God was just going, okay, it's okay, no big deal. Sin doesn't really bug me anyway. That's not what's going on there. But rather, he is forbearing. He is patiently waiting for something to happen. But until that something happens, we need to do this. We need to keep doing this. We keep needing to remind people that they're sinners and they need a blood atonement. They need a ransom. They need a propitiation. They need something to appease the wrath of God. But year after year after year after year after year as the priest went in and, and, and offered the, the blood sacrifice on the mercy seat, at all this time that this was happening, God was overlooking or passing over their sin. But what it looked like to the casual observer is that God is not righteous. Paul has just finished arguing emphatically to the Jews that the keeping of the law did not make them righteous. And so if you follow Paul's logic, it seems, to its logical conclusion, you would say, well, if the keeping of the law didn't make them righteous, and God's been overlooking or passing over their sin now for 1,500 years, God must not be righteous. We've got a problem, don't we? That's why the public display of Christ as a propitiation is so important. Because he says there in verse 25, he publicly displayed him as a propitiation in his blood through faith. What does he say? Um... This was to demonstrate what? His righteousness. When, when, he took Jesus, when he had Jesus taken out there and publicly displayed as crucified, it was displaying, it was demonstrating that in all those years when God was passing over people's sins, that he was righteous and that he had a plan and that ultimately he was going to deal with their sin. But he wasn't going to destroy them. He wasn't going to kill them. He wasn't going to zap them when they came into the temple. He wasn't going to do that because he was going to make a provision. And then anybody who believed in that provision could have the righteousness of God and come before him unafraid. So the public display of Christ was so that we might see that God, in passing over sins low those many years, was still righteous. And I ask myself, because what's fascinating here is 
this propitiation, this mercy seat, this second mercy seat, this second propitiation, where was it done? It was done publicly. It was done in a major first century city on a public thoroughfare. I have stood there and looked at the place. Nowadays, it's a bus stop. It would have been a good place to crucify Christ if you wanted it to be public. (laughs) Well, there weren't buses back then, of course, but it was a busy thoroughfare. And not only was it a busy thoroughfare, but it was done at the height of one of the greatest festivals in Judaism, meaning that there were hundreds of thousands of people, possibly upwards of one to two million people in Jerusalem at the time that this happened. And I go, God, why did you do that? I mean, it could have been done over here in a corner. It could have been done in some remote place of the empire, in some little town somewhere. You know, we talk all about the scandal of the cross and the shame and the embarrassment and him being hung up there naked and displayed like he was and bleeding and dying in front of tens of thousands of people walking by on the streets below him. And, and I think, well, you know, you, you didn't have to do it that way. You could have done it and made the sacrifice over in some remote corner where, you know, it wouldn't have been so disgraceful and so shameful. But he didn't do it that way. And what strikes me is the contrast between the first, the second mercy seat and the first. Where was the first mercy seat? In the Holy of Holies. Nobody could see it. Nobody could see it. It was hidden away. And the reason it was hidden away and made secret like that, sort of secret, I mean, it's not that people didn't know about it, but, but it just wasn't out in people's face, is because... It was only a picture. And it wasn't really effective in doing what needed to be done. But when God came and sent the second mercy seat, the real mercy seat, the true mercy seat, He publicly displayed Him. He put Him out there on a cross to be crucified for all men to see. So that you and I as Gentiles who have no, no touch or nothing, nothing to do with Judaism and all the things that we would see that Christ is the mercy seat and Christ is the blood sacrifice for our sins as well as for the sins of the Jews. But he's not true. Because we still have that one problem we talked about at the beginning. And we need to think about it for just a second. In verse 26, he says what? For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be what? Just and justifier. That's the point. Remember, we talked about the problem we had. How can a righteous God rule people, unrighteous people, righteous? You know, it's like a judge sitting there in his bench, you know, and some guy comes in and he's robbed a bank. All right? And, and, 
And all the evidence is there. I mean, eyewitnesses, you know, DNA evidence, all the evidence is there. The guy is guilty. He robbed the bank. And he's standing there in front of the judge holding the bags of cash, right? Okay. So he's guilty, okay? And the judge goes, this guy's innocent. Now, we actually have those kind of things happen in our judicial system from time to time. Thankfully, not, not all the time, but it does happen, right? And when it happens... What do we think? We're outraged, aren't we? Because it's unjust. And so it was necessary that Christ as the propitiation for our sins be publicly displayed so that we could see that God is just when He justifies us. Why? Because a propitiation has been paid. A ransom has been paid. And so when the righteous God looked on Rick Harvey and said, Rick is righteous. He did not become unrighteous in doing that. Because he himself, the one whose wrath needed to be satisfied, satisfied the wrath with the offering of His own Son on the cross as the propitiatory sacrifice for me and for you. There's only one caveat. I must believe. I must trust Christ. I must trust that propitiatory sacrifice And if I do, you and I alike, without distinction, are declared righteous and God remains righteous. Okay? Well, next week we'll pick up in the next verses.